I want it now too. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, America. Good morning, Europe. Good morning, Asia. Well, good afternoon, Asia. And almost, well, good night, good evening to the far Pacific, or should we say near Pacific? Well, welcome everyone. I'm going to start streaming on mornings as opposed to noon and as opposed to the evening. So that way we can get a jump start. I took a nice hiatus. A lot was going on in my personal life. I'm uh, my youngest has left. She's currently at boot camp. My eldest got married. And, uh, you know, it's a uh, uh, pretty interesting times because everything happened at the same time. But what also happened is that there was kind of a lull because uh, there's a lot brewing. And I've always said this. Number one, always listen to your president. He tells you everything you need to know, period. Don't even listen to me. But the other thing I always say is when you don't know what's going on or you're kind of curious as to what's going on, what you have to do is start at the beginning. So as you can see, the news today is uh, pretty much dominated on inserting Ukraine into NATO, which would be bizarre because NATO nations have to pay a lot of money. And considering that they have our money, why are they even being entertained? Well, that's a story that I'm going to be breaking on paper very soon. Well, today I hope because I still have some investigations to do. And I'll hint to that. There is a lot going on right now in the, I would say the world affairs. I think that's the easiest way of saying it. But more so, I believe the issues that we have as a people is understanding why things are happening the way they are happening. It's quite interesting. See, I want people to understand that, but let's just take it down to the bare bones without the politics. Evil manipulates and exploits the power of cyberspace to foster confusion and self-destruction. That is something that many people don't seem to understand perfectly as to why there is so much confusion. I want you to understand, to capture the thoughts and minds of people, you must have them all sequestered in one place. As the master of deception, Evil understands the immense potential of cyberspace as a tool for sowing confusion and discord among mankind. In this digital age, the virtual realm has become an integral part of the human experience. It offers unprecedented connectivity and information exchange. It is within this vast network that evil finds an ideal breeding ground for a destructive agenda. Now, many years ago, I was bold enough, well, before even President Trump said it, that the biggest domestic terrorist organization within the United States is the mainstream media. 
And this is because media is how information is, is distributed. Back in the days of yore, it was the decrees from the jester or the king's court that would advise the people of whatever the news was. Books, publications, folk songs, people speaking at agoras or temples or churches. That was the media back then. Now, it's at the tip of your fingers where everyone taps the stream and absorbs an immense amount of information. Now, evil through these various means of cyberspace influences the dissemination of misinformation, manipulates narratives, and spreads divisive ideologies. And this is the intention of evil. And I'll tell you why. Evil will not come at you and kill you. It's not like, you know, a demon or Satan or someone really evil. I mean, they do, but that's not fun. And I speak of this from experience. It's actually quite shameful. It's a lot more fun when you tell them the train wreck is coming and you watch them watch it happen. And that's, and that's how evil is. It obscures truth, clouding the collective judgment of humanity fostering a climate of confusion and polarizing societies. Mankind is literally trapped in a web of contradicting information, and it struggles to discern fact from fiction, right from wrong. And that indeed is how evil wins. You must understand that the evil around us, because this is pretty much down to it, good versus evil. And there's no, I'm doing good, but I'm using evil ways. That's wrong. It's still evil. You have to understand the addictive nature that social media and the digital realm have. And therefore, evil harnesses that and engenders a dependency on technology, ensnaring the minds and diverting attention away from genuine, human connections, meaningful experiences, and real information. Social media platforms have become breeding grounds of envy, comparison, self-doubt, eroding the very fabric of human relationships and fuel destructive behaviors. And this is why I always get a little bit salty. By keeping mankind fixated on specific matters and endless distractions, evil ensures that the true perils facing humanity go extremely unnoticed, that the source of all their issues is obfuscated to the point where no one knows how to fix it. No one knows how to remedy it. No one knows what is really going on. Environmental degradation, social injustices, global crises have overshadowed the true issues, including celebrity gossip, superficial indulgences, and hyperfixation on certain topics. Humanity unwittingly marches towards its own demise. It's oblivious to the real issues at hand to the real challenges that demand urgent attention and collective action. Now, 
evil, understands and revels in the inherent vulnerability of cyberspace. The interconnectedness of digital systems allows for the propagation of cybercrime, hacking, and identity theft, further destabilizing societies and eroding trust. And as chaos ensues, people lose faith in institutions, in each other, and ultimately in themselves. This erosion of trust and the breakdown of social cohesion pave the way for humanity's self-destruction as individuals become isolated, fragmented, and hyper-fixated. But you know, I say this with full shame, but the twisted pleasure from observing mankind descend into chaos and self-destruction is the same twisted pleasure that I get when evil gets caught and they're told they're getting caught. I struggle with that. Because witnessing the consequences of their own actions, I relish in the idea that I'm not directly responsible for their demise. And the same thing goes for evil. Evil will not put the knife to your throat. It will teach you how to craft the knife so that you do it yourself. Evil entices humans to destroy themselves through their own ignorance, apathy, and indulgence and can perpetuate suffering and despair while maintaining a facade of innocence. Remember, evil cunningly exploits the confusion and vulnerability inherent in cyberspace to foster mankind's self-destruction and self-enslavement voluntarily by manipulating information, fostering addictions, and diverting attention from the real issues that can eradicate the repercussions that are upon us. Evil and I share one common ground, and we revel in chaos as it ensues. And I believe that people that can revel in chaos are highly adaptable and can take the 40,000 foot view. But evil uses chaos as a vessel to create the perfect script, the perfect grounding, and the perfect environment to watch humanity destroy itself, oblivious to evil's influence. And in a way, all of them have a sense of sadistic satisfaction. And let's not forget, it underscores evil's role as the ultimate deceiver and destroyer. And this pretty much sums up as to how I get infuriated when I see people take bona fide information, inject misinformation to misdirect the people. I mean, while I was taking this hiatus, conducting investigations that you will know about soon, I had enough enough of the psychological operations, enough of the misinformation and disinformation agents. 
In fact, I was presented with an opportunity by someone who thought because they were propped up by people that were also misled that they had the clout to yap their mouth. And so while a private conversation ensued where I pointed out, hey, these people are not good. Why are you speaking with these people? These people are allegedly against the things that you claim. Well, then, why did that person then suddenly attack? I'll tell you what, Erickson Report. I talked about it in 2018. I just didn't call it that. Only because I didn't want people to take it and make it hyper-specific about one thing. I want to take you back in time where I talked to you about working on the Affordable Care Act. I want to take you back in time to where I discussed how the AAR system was a global citizen database that everyone contributed their DNA to during COVID, obviously. If you remember correctly, when the Affordable Care Act came to, they had already begun sharing our medical and private identifying information globally. I mean, I wrote an article about it in 2015. That's how far back. Or was it 2014? On Medium. But you know, other people know best, right? They're influencers. Marketers that are paid assets. Paid assets, I repeat. Paid assets. And we're going to talk about money today. But when I wrote that article, I was bringing attention to how they pitched it to the people. Hey, what if you're in Mexico and you're at the beach and suddenly you break your leg and you don't speak Spanish? Don't you want the doctor in Mexico to be able to access your healthcare information to help you? What if you're traveling in France and your kid is kidnapped? Don't you want your babies or your kids' DNA, footprints, handprints to be on tap for the French police? That's what the Eric system is. Hey, you're voting. I should have you in that system. That's what the Eric system is. See, I did a full report for Congress and Senate in 2017 when I saw that the election machines were not certified. And so this has been implemented for two decades and then some. So when I see people taking a report that is a global enslavement tool and make it only about human and child trafficking, I call bullshit. It's a global file. And while many would say, well, why didn't you say that? Because I wanted people to know the name. Like I care about credit. You think someone is going to tell me who I am? At least, at least, something was brought to light even with the disinformation that they sow, because these are all assets. 
They all are kinetic. The people commanding these assets are kinetic persons. People that are kinetic, that have been in war zones. They don't understand game theory outside of that. As someone who doesn't say this to pride herself, but someone who is ashamed. But I guess, you know, it was all part of the process, right? Destroying a nation and taking hold of the minds of masses of people is a very delicate dance. Disinformation has to be acceptable. Have you noticed ever since 2016, you know, because I played double sides for a bit, the mainstream media has kind of dropped the ball and they look really insane. Whereas before that, it didn't look as crazy, did it? Because there were a lot of smart mathematicians that helped with that. I'm ashamed to say it, but I did. I did horrific things. My intellect, my talent was manipulated and used by people that had other plans. And now speaking of other plans, I mean, I really need Dom Lucre to do this Q thing, right? I'd come in with receipts, but he should totally call Michael Curry because that guy's like, he claims he's part of the Q team, knows Q, pushed that Austin Steinbart was Q, and I'd like to address that for a second. As you all know, I had Austin Steinbart on my show too. And as you all know, everyone was very upset that he was calling himself Q and Baby Q and all these things. Then we have Defango who claims he started Q actually. <laughs> and then, you know, one would say, well, Tori, why did you talk with Steinbart? Why did you do this? Well, let me just tell you guys the thought process so you understand how game theory actually works. And when you want to destroy your enemy, you allow more light to be shown. So Michael Curry, during that time of Austin Steinbart's rise, was completely thirsty and infatuated with uh, TS-12, the Majestic, he was thirsty, like he was on board that, he was insane. He's a nobody, he's just a marketer, he's nobody. Lebanese American marketer, that's it he is. He had nothing to do with Austin at that time. Austin Steinbart on the other hand was saying things that I agreed with, that you know these people that were decoding Q, where there's nothing to decode, it's straightforward if you know what you're looking at. You know, <laughs> it's like decode, you know, Nothing to decode. But what he was saying was not erroneous. And how he was, except for the fact of identifying himself. But I wanted to prop him up because he was going to destroy the bizarre, weird behavior where people were following a paramedic that was praying and making 100 post threads telling you what Q is doing. Or the fact that you had Lisa May Crowley, a former cryptologist, right, in Russian from the Air Force that now sells Mary Kay or something, was now tapped to be an asset. These are the things people need to be paying attention to. Now, while many might say, well, it kind of helped because it woke people up. Well, what's the point of waking up someone from a nightmare just to engulf them in a dream where they can't see the nightmare anymore? It makes absolutely no sense. You need the people to be awake with their eyes open 
to be able to see, not mesmerize them with hopium or mesmerize them with anything. And this is exactly what happened. I watched it happen. We all watched it happen. The way it was detracted, the way military officials stepped in to hijack it. It's, it's just insane. We had people from trailers, you know, making videos and suddenly they became the epitome of whatever. We had like this click, this high school lunchroom fucking table when it's about the people, not them. And it's still perpetuating too. This is where we're at. And this is why there is confusion into what's real news and what's not. You would dismiss the left's reporting or the right's reporting, just like everybody will. They don't want to look at anything right now because nothing is real. And as I've said from day one, don't even listen to me. Listen to your president. He will tell you everything you need to know. Now, going on that confusion, I want you to understand that right now, you know, this war has been ongoing. And if any of you think that you are free, you are highly mistaken. Highly mistaken. Slaves, as you learn in your history books, were whipped and chained and taken from the River Niger and brought over. And it's why the slang word was used, because they came from the River Niger. Right? But what happened when they got there? They would sit on masses of land that one guy owned. And they would work and they would create families and they would be fed and they would have a house. They would own nothing and enjoy it. Now, this is exactly where we are at right now. Worldwide, I can tell you, there are people globally right now fighting back and don't know how to fight. Feeling ashamed for decisions they made in the past, just as individual citizens. But I'm going to take you back to definitions. See, you can whip people into shape. You can kill your opponents and silence the voices of those that speak by cutting their tongue. But when you use force, you will be overthrown. And this is fact throughout history. One thing, though, that you can do is capture the thoughts, have thought control. Thought control. How do you capture thoughts? Well, definitions. Cyberspace, by definitions, is cyber, which means I govern, space, which means the place that I govern. Cyberspace is your prison. That prison was evaded in the 40s by not deploying the stream. For that stream, cyberspace will keep you in check. It can see your bank balances, your text messages, your emails, your pictures, your every deepest, darkest thought, the porn you watch, the questions you ask. And it knows exactly how you will respond using quantum predictive analytics, you know, the shit I use. Now, 
Your minds are captured on the internet. Words are very important. I mean, even internet. Yeah, you're caught in that web. And what's very important that people need to remember is that God has been depicted in the cloud for a very long time, actually, since the first century, post Jesus' crucifixion. AI is in the cloud, too. Now hear me when I say this. No matter what you hear, do not confuse the two. Especially when the truth about Q comes out. Remember that. Everything is highly calculated by these evil people. Everything. And what you have to do is ensure that you don't fall into those traps. Super traps. And I guess uh, the most important thing today, aside from understanding evil and how it operates, is to understand the role of Ukraine. Now, I've written many, many articles, and I have to say I'm extremely disappointed in all these magnificent persons that I see online that have had access to the Hunter Biden laptop for so long, and all they talk about is hookers, crack, and China. When the real enchilada is what I've been writing about. See, in 2019, how did I know? That Ukraine was their Hiroshima. Okay, Tori, you worked the desk. Yes, because I rigged their elections in 2014. I was part of that team. Done. I said it. Everybody tells you who they are if you're listening. So then one has to wonder, why would someone not listen? Because it doesn't make them money. It's pretty simple. It's all about the money. Paper, dollar, dollar, dollar. Or else this would have been way done before. Uh, Hence the allowance of Austin Steinbart and the friendly. No harm done as long as he can destroy the stupid narratives. I mean, where are they now, right? Again, going back to Ukraine, aside from the fact that everyone's understanding something's up, I mean, it does make sense. If you remember, I moved here just before a massive raid of an alleged oligarch, actually right across the street from them. And I watched it. Watched the FBI go in, watched the FBI go out, watched it all. And what's interesting is Ukraine is a very specific geostrategic point for the United States. Like, what if you realized, aside from the energy resources, because Ukraine possesses significant energy resources, particularly natural gas, right? 
uh, you know, security and NATO expansion, right? Apparently, Ukraine has a very strategic location. It does geographically for military capabilities as an asset for the West. See, you see how the polarization happens, West, East, North, South, whatever. They still polarize on bigger scales too. It's not just black, white, or poor, rich, right? There's polarization. But you have to think to yourself, when did this whole Ukraine thing happen and why? You know how when we started bringing all these uh, refugees, they all came into Minnesota, right? Oh. And stuff like that. And people were like, oh, that's like the hub for terrorism, right? Well, where would the, the, where would the hub for Ukrainians be? You know, I want you guys to think of that just for a minute. I want you to think of it actually for a few minutes. I want, I'm going to play a song and I want you to kind of think of what place in the United States would you consider to be ideal for the center of the Ukrainian hub? Which one would you think is ideal? Like which place, which location would be ideal for Ukrainian operations? I don't want you to think in a sense of one year, two years. I want you to think in a sense of 40 years. What state in the United States is the center of the Ukrainian corruption? One of my favorite mashups, that is. So I was looking at the chat because it is kind of on delay. So I kind of like that intermission so that way I could see all the responses. Allow me to answer that question. When I came back stateside in 2008, I went to school to follow crumbs of what was happening. I detected that the deployment would be on the West Coast, so I migrated myself all the way to Oregon, made it happen. Do you guys remember where the first landing of COVID was? It was actually Seattle, Washington. Couldn't be in the depths of it, but I had to be by St. Vincent's Hospital, which was a facilitator that was located in Portland, Oregon. But on top of that, I worked as a executive assistant to the president, or and not the president, but the person that ran, <laughs> Edelman Communications, PR, of course, right? Private PR, private PR, private PR, private. And that was purposeful. And then after that, I moved to North Dakota to find the Chinese and find the trails of the trafficking and the fentanyl, which then Jeff Sessions uh, so clearly 
uh, figured out was up at the hub of Minnesota. Why is someone advertising on my channel? Like this is so, delete that message, thank you. I don't understand why people do that, so thirsty. So stop being thirsty, do, you, <laughs> do some good and people will come and watch. Now, then I moved to North Dakota. I was, okay, this person needs to be banned. Give me a second, guys. Forever. And delete. Thank you. All right. Now that we got the advertisers removed, let's continue. And then I moved to Ohio. Allow me to show you Ukraine and how important they've been to the corporations. Let's start from 10 years ago, something a lot of people have not seen. Let's take a look at this video. Очки, делаем фото, оплатить счет. Алло? Да, привет, мам. Да, я помню. Сейчас переведу, да. Две секунды. Очки переводим маме 400 гривен. Очки заправляем. Третья колонка, 95 и 20 литров. Вау, вау, вау. Ukraine's Privat Bank was courted by Google. And in that commercial, you saw the prostitute walking out too while the guy was at the ATM pulling out money. Very spot on for Ukrainian culture. Well, let's talk about a few things. Now, mm, a lot of people don't seem to remember tales from places where discussions have been had about how many people are resigning, and then you have to ask yourself why are they resigning. Well, you know, back, 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 when I started talking about Ukraine for a long, long time, Ohio was in the center of it. How? Well, there was a resignation that happened that was quite fascinating, and a resignation that's sourced by the same area. Uh, allow me to elaborate. They're going after Justice Thomas Clarence. Clarence Thomas. Cl Thomas Clarence. I say this because you should be paying attention to inversions, diversions, and misspellings. Now, I want you to listen to an interview from seven years ago. Please, take a listen. I'm sorry I can't be with you today. I'm back in Ohio. I'm U.S. Senator Rob Portman. I'm sorry I can't be with you today. I'm back in Ohio. But I wanted to take a few minutes to thank everyone from the U.S. Ukraine Foundation, Save Ukraine Now, members, staff from this House and Senate Ukraine Caucus, for your support of the people of Ukraine. Over the past year and a half, we've seen the conflict in Ukraine escalate. 
as Russian aggressors and their proxies continue to spread violence. As it grows, so do the number of victims who have been caught in one of the world's worst humanitarian catastrophes now. It's important not to forget that this conflict in Ukraine is not just a geopolitical problem, it's a humanitarian issue as well. According to the recent figures from the United Nations, 5 million people, including 1.7 million kids, are in need of the most basic humanitarian assistance, and only 35% of what is needed has been funded or pledged. Despite the incredible difficulties Ukraine has faced, the spirit of the Maidan is alive and well. I saw it when I led the congressional delegation to Kyiv to monitor the Ukrainian presidential elections back in May of 2014. While I was there, I still saw the smoldering ruins of the protesters' camps at the Maidan, where those first battles in the war for Ukraine's future were fought. But I also saw it earlier this year when I visited Ukraine again to meet with government officials and discuss the tough choices being made to carry out much-needed reforms. There's so much more to be done during this crucial period. After all, it's not easy to do what they're doing, fight off a Russian invasion, rebuild an army, stabilize an economy, implement sweeping domestic reforms, and to do it all at once. We've got to stand with Ukraine during this difficult period, stand against the continued Russian aggression, whose forces have made a mockery of these so-called ceasefires, and continue their occupation of sovereign Ukrainian territory in Crimea, Donbass. And we must support Ukraine as it makes these difficult economic and political reforms needed to promote pr prosperity, transparency, and true liberty around the country. Rhetoric and half measures are not enough. The United States must now step up to the plate and provide direct, lethal military assistance to Ukraine. Finally, give Ukraine the tools they need to be able to defend themselves. We should also tighten the sanctions until Russia understands its actions are unacceptable and until they respect Ukraine's sovereignty. We must also fight back against the Russian propaganda machine, which seeks to convince the world that somehow they are the true victims of a conflict that they actually started. And we must work to alleviate the suffering of the innocent people who have been hurt by this conflict. We need sustained long-term support for strengthening this U.S.-Ukrainian relationship. It's so important. Our two countries should remain unshakable allies. That's exactly why Senator Dick Durbin and I founded the Senate Ukraine Caucus, a group of senators who are committed to support Ukraine's democratic, pro-Western future. This is our mission and we should stand shoulder to shoulder with all those who support that goal. Thanks so much for allowing me to speak with you today. I look forward to continuing to work with all of you to end the current conflict so the people of Ukraine can have that future that knows peace and prosperity. I couldn't even play the God bless America part from him. How dare he? Now, if you remember, I moved to Ohio prior to coming here. I had already started fires with Householder, the GOP lead in Ohio with First Energy, you know, with all that dabbling I did in regards to Enron. And one would think, what would that have to do with anything? Well, the garden of evil is upon us. And there are people you've never even heard of, rich people, poor people, former spooks, current spooks. Former FBI, current FBI. Former CIA, current CIA. Former NSA, current NSA. Former NRO, current NRO. I can keep going. As I said, this is a spy versus spy game. And the only way to win is to not to play their game. Instead, you should stand on top of the grounds that they are playing the game on and throw wrenches. So every time they try to shoot a goal, 
your stupid wrench gets in the way and they're just like, damn it. But you're ruining it for both sides. It's okay. It's necessary because that's how truth comes out. Re-listen to that if you need to. Now let's go to the Kiev post from six years ago. Or no. Let's go to eight years ago. Let's talk about these uh, Ukrainian oligarchs. These Ukrainian oligarchs that were so powerful, so darn powerful, that no one could understand who, what, when, where. Well, it's quite important that we understand it now because everything makes sense. Well, it will when I drop my story. I just have one more thing to do. And that will show you exactly how people with access to information refuse to use the information. Again, this is going back to the beginning, going back to everything. Or let's think, Hunter Biden laptop. How many times have I said we shouldn't be looking at the hookers and the crack and the cocaine, right? Obviously the weapon, yes. But why nail him? It's Obama we need to be focused on. He's the one that has been running the show. Well, he lost his best scriptwriter. So, I mean, as you can see watching the video, there are a lot of profanities. It's not a behavior considered for a public official, but you know, one thing we want to look at and is concerning are, are the broader issues here. It's the role of oligarchs in post-Maidan Ukraine, um, and in particular, you know, looking at oligarchs who are so-called patriotic oligarchs. Um, Ihor Kolomoisky has played uh, you know, a large role financing uh, different battalions. Ukraine today as uh, the governor of Dnipropetrovsk region, but there are still questions, you know, even for people and oligarchs with a lot of money who support the state who are really there, are there limits uh, on which they should be able to use that influence to profit from it, even if these systems have been in place for a long time? Uh, and the question there, on the one hand, is does the Ukrainian state want to limit that? There's all sorts of pressures in terms of finance on reality, on trying to create a new system and trying to show reforms that are tangible by people. But on the other hand, for oligarchs who have supported the state and have provided functions that the state hasn't been able to, there's a worry that, it, especially in an 
area like Dnipropetrovsk, which is close to Donetsk, that any sort of weakness or attempts to reform could you know, allow separatists to gain more influence, could allow Russia propaganda programs to come farther. Uh, and that's a very difficult question to approach at a time when the Ukrainian state finds itself both you know, in terms of pure guns outgunned, but also financial, uh, financially and finding support for programs, for refugee programs, for volunteer programs, for military programs. It's a really tricky question, as you say. Um, very tricky question for the for the president of for the government uh, in the first place, I'd say. And after this incident, of course, Ukraine and probably the whole world was uh, waiting for some official reaction from the president, uh, from the cabinet of ministers, from the government, to see how they react. Uh, not only, of course, to this kind of uh, speech, uh, uh, which is obviously unacceptable, but also uh, to this kind of move, yes, to this uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of an operation started in the, uh, in the office. So it uh, took um, almost half a day till the president reacted with a reprimand, uh, which which is also a question whether whether it's uh, a proper reaction, whether it's a proper. Uh, reaction to what happened and of, and now uh, having all that ha having that incident several days ago uh, even today we have some updates right we have uh, some reports coming from the office of Ukrnafta this time uh, which almost half is uh, owned by private group owned by which, Kolomoisky, which mm. was which um, in this office happened almost the same story with people in camouflage uh, entering the office and barricading them from the inside. So um, even after uh, a deal, yes, we had, uh, we had reports that Kolomoisky went to see the president and he also went to see uh, government officials and they had a deal um, saying that uh, four, uh, four companies will check into, into the activity of Ukrtrans Nafta. So what the question is, what was the deal about if this kind of thing happens? happens today, right? And I mean, the, the issue when we're looking at this, it's not entirely clear what's going on, but there's enough that's unclear to be concerned about. Uh, one other video we just want to show, this was outside the office of Ukrainafta, um, while they were these people inside and, you know, blocking access to it. Они там остаются, почему они не выходят? Что они там будут делать? Они будут там ночевать, спать. Документы жечь. Да? Ну а вы? Вы шутите? на нормальной стране. Fascinating, isn't it? Well, allow me to tell you some Biden stuff. So you remember how Biden allegedly asked, well, no, he did ask, Poroshenko to support the then head of the central bank to determine the date for proceeding with nationalizing Privatbank. Joe Biden had a telephone conversation with the ex-president Petro Poroshenko in um, confidence, I guess. <laughs> about the decision on nationalizing Privatbank. Privatbank was created, it was a, privately owned by Kolomoinsky and another person, which then they created this company called Optima Ventures. And uh, in that, we will find a 25-year-old um, Israeli called Chim Shohet, um, 
and uh, they bought a shit ton of properties in Kentucky, Ohio, and based out of Miami. The guy's 25 years old with two twin boys, multi-million dollars. They're being investigated for fraud. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to give you opium. I'm going to show you how sting operations actually happen and how they target the good people when they know they got caught. So today's show, we'll just introduce you to that because I guess tomorrow or maybe late tonight when I compile some certain things and I put it out in print, you'll see just how all media has failed you to provide you transparency on what is really going on. But you know, I just Google shit. Or as Roger Stone says, she's just getting lucky. Get the fuck out of here. Excuse my saltiness. Let's continue. So according to leaked audio recordings, it says, in 2016, the only outpost remained Privat Bank and One Plus One TV channel. Since Petro Oloshinovich Poroshenko sought to grab it with the right to control One Plus One channel, I mean propaganda, right? We need Pravda, right? So he decided to push this through along with Biden to capture Privat Bank. And I'll tell you why they captured it. Privat Bank was one of the largest banks and it was one of the biggest fronts. Now this is 2016. 2016, where were the headquarters of those that were in charge of Privat Bank? In Ohio. The heart of America became find it here. But even here, Poroshenko couldn't go without scheming. He says that before raiding Privat and Kolomonsky's media assets, the vote for the state budget must be first held because if we now begin to seize Privat, Kolomoinsky's representatives in parliament won't give their votes to the budget. To prove the point, he made public what he claims in phone talks held by Poroshenko and Biden. I should play that audio so you can all hear it. Hold on. Let's go to that specific point. You should take a listen to it so you can hear it. And I'm going to showcase to you someone who's working hard in the background. And I love Dallas. People do not trust the reform. This reform is impossible to implement. This is point number one. Point number two, job. We do not have a majority in the parliament. That is the main point. I have in my party, uh, in my fraction, 136 members of parliament, and from them 16 are ready to write down the uh, statement for going out from the coalition. He has 81. So, altogether, this is 201, and we have lack of more than 20 votes. And even if let's call in return or not return or doing like that, we do not have a physical majority. This is the case. For the Say it again. How did you get the reforms passed this week? Because, because I asked personally that 
fraction who go out from the coalition, I mean Samopomich and Timoshenko. That was my special meeting with them. They give me a message that because of the trust to you, Mr. President, we vote for the RMF and for the visa-free and for the anti-corruption, but we do not vote just because of the person of the Prime Minister. And that is, his, that is their message. And that's why I'm very happy that we are strong enough and brave enough and lucky enough, actually, to have these changes now, but we should have an intensive negotiation how to find out the way how to return these fractions back to the coalition. But the demonstrate that the, everything is okay, people are happy, we have a majority in the parliament, this is not true. The other fraction we can invite, that they, but they speak only with the language of the political corruption. And I hate the idea to, after the Maidan, to buy the votes. Интересно было, конечно, послушать э, текст разговоров Порошенко с Тимошенко, где он, она уверяет его в уважении. So that, my friends, was leaked audio. That's why you could hear the person breathing. And it was actually quite low in volume. But allow me to reiterate. Biden says, let me ask you one more thing before I forget. Privet Bank. I understand the governor of the Nationalization Bank is tentative about setting a date for the transition to take place. And I'm being told secondhand, and I know this is her position for sure, that she is unsure of the date until she gets an agreement from you. I told, well, here's what I told them. I told them to get back to her and set a date. And I will talk to you about the date because this is getting very, very close. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want Trump to get into the position where he thinks he is about to buy onto a policy where the financial system is going to collapse and he's going to be looked to pour more money into Ukraine. That's how he'll think about it before he gets sophisticated enough to know the details. So anything you can do to push the private bank to closure so that the IMF loan comes forward, I would respectfully suggest this is critically important to your economic as well as physical security. I know it's difficult. I know Kolomoinsky is a pain in the ass and a problem for everybody, but it's literally critical that you guys figure this one out. That's what Joe Biden said. He also, I just want you to know, and I want you to give the governor of the bank some spine. Let her know that you'll be standing there when she sets a date and moves forward. That's what he told Poroshenko over the phone. Then... Poroshenko, who was then president, remember, I went through all of this years ago because it's important. He said that he was waiting to see an audit report by Ernest Young before he convened with the National Bank of Ukraine governor, prime minister, finance minister, and security officer. He also added that that's going to be happening on November 22nd, 2016. They knew Trump was going to win. They knew we have a voting on the budget in Parliament where Kolomoinsky has a significant number of members of Parliament. And Poroshenko explained, Prime Minister asked me to vote budget first and launch the process. He also told Joe Biden, this is confidential information. And Biden said, I'll keep that with me. And on December 18th, 2016, during the transition period, 
indeed, Privat Bank was decided to become a national bank. But it didn't really work out that way. Let's go to what they were saying six years ago in regards to this. Here's a report. Let's take a look. It's from six years ago. Spain's largest private bank is being nationalized to protect the country's financial system and preserve an essential bailout loan from the International Monetary Fund. Privet Bank was running out of money because of the recession in Ukraine and questionable loans. Part owner Ihor Kolomoisky, a powerful tycoon who in the past has clashed with Ukraine's president Petro Poroshenko, couldn't raise enough money to recapitalize the bank. Poroshenko went on TV to assure the more than 20 million Ukrainians with money in the bank that their cash is safe as a parliamentary bill gives additional guarantees on deposits. The finance ministry says rescuing Privat Bank is essential as part of the cleanup of Ukraine's financial system. That could help unlock more aid from the International Monetary Fund next year. But it will cost the state the equivalent of at least 4.3 billion euros, which the central bank said it will be able to cover. Um. The finance minister believes that the government will get its money back from a future sale. He told reporters after the bank is fully stabilized and starts to fulfill its plan of strategic development, the government plans to sell the bank. The rescue could have political ramifications though, with opposition lawmakers blaming the government and one calling it the greatest robbery of Ukraine's state budget of the millennium. Well, I mean, Obama had to create the, 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 the ground for it, right? But here's the thing. They didn't get it. See, you know, you know something weird? Do you know that when um, Rudy Giuliani went to Ukraine, do you know who was really upset about that? Rob Portman. He's like, I'm a specialist in Ukraine. Why is he sending Rudy, the stupid lawyer? That's what he said. He said it himself. He said it himself. And so I want people to understand just how, just how sting operation is conducted. Because when you think about it, Igor Kolomoinsky, like, let's see who this oligarch is. This comes from Oligarch Watch by the Ukrainians. You know, they all loved Igor until he was captured. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that person's corrupt. You can't trust them. They're like in on it. And it's like, that's the one you want to befriend. When you want to avoid complete disaster, you try to make friends with those that are on the inside. You don't outcast them. Kind of like the way whistleblowers are, right? They're on the inside. They know. So then why would you silence them? Well, let's take a look at who this oligarch is.
Кофе будешь пить? Это ваших рублей? Кофе будешь пить? Пойдемте пить кофе. Да, это наших рублей. Коломойского, блядь, надо увидеть. Сидишь тут, блядь, и караулишь, блядь. Как тёлка, блядь, своего неверного мужа. The Ukrainians didn't like him. You have to ask yourself why. Well, here's another why. So as they nationalized Privat Bank and they moved forward, just like Obama said, I mean, Biden said, uh, he's a VP, of course, Obama said. Well, what happened? Let's take a look. Hello and welcome to the program. Ukraine's Privat Bank has won an appeal in a London court. Now, the bank claimed that its former owners, oligarchs Ihor Kolomoisky and Hennady Bogolubov, withdrew vast amounts of money that led to the recapitalization of about five and a half billion US dollars in 2016. And now uh, the oligarchs must pay the bank a total of 10.9 million uh, pounds by November the 12th. Now, I'm pleased to say to talk more about this particular case, we welcome to our studio Yevhen Nevmajitsky. He's an economist. Hello, thank you so much for uh, coming in. Good evening. So we've had some very big developments actually in this particular case. Um, we won't talk about the exact amounts of money that are involved because it does get quite confusing. But uh, firstly, I want to talk about a meeting uh, which happened uh, this week at the presidential administration. Uh, we could show on, on screen in a second. It was the chief of staff, Andrei uh, Bogdan, mm -hmm. and uh, members of the G7 ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that particular meeting, we can see on the screen, in a second. It was agreed um, and the presidential administration said that the decision on the re um, sort of selling off uh, Privat Bank will not happen for sure despite whatever the courts decide in the future. So do you think this is uh, quite a big development that actually the presidential administration here have said that they're going to overrule any sort of court decision? Uh, okay, the main uh the most important thing is that uh, private bank is going on and uh, it continues serving clients uh, and uh, it seems everything is okay with uh, uh, private bank and uh, code solutions and all this struggle we are talking about is beside uh, the work of the bank and it is good and i hope very much that uh, clients will be happy uh, all the time uh, mm. uh, take into consideration uh, what uh, uh, kind of solutions code solutions uh, will be in in the future mm. and uh, the, that is the that's main, an important point actually. yes yeah. it's the most important uh, <laughs> so for our economy and financial th system everything will be uh, okay uh, nevertheless uh, the state will win in this game or uh, former owners of the bank will uh, take back uh, the uh, bank i can't say that uh, uh, there is a 
important uh, development in this uh, case. Uh, the further we go, the more uh, complication we uh, can see. Of course, this question is very uh, important, but on the one hand, uh, our interest of the state and uh, justice of uh, former court solution regarding nationalization of mm. the bank. On the other uh, hand uh, is the uh, interest of uh, two private people, former owners of, uh, of the bank. And uh, I again uh, would like to repeat that uh, interests of uh, uh, clients of the, uh, this bank uh, will be saved uh, in, in any case. Yeah. Um, and now it's quite interesting when you look at the figures um, yeah. that's involved in this particular case because uh, the recapitalization, as we mentioned, uh, back in 2016 was to the tune of 5.5 uh, billion, uh, which uh, it was a huge uh, decision to make. And it was seen it was abroad as a very positive decision to make to stabilize the bank. But at the same time, uh, the uh, bank has been ordered in this appeal court to pay 10.9 million pounds by November, uh, sorry, billion pounds, uh, sorry, million pounds, that's right, by November the 12th. So um, can you explain a bit more about the figures which are involved in this? Yes, it's very easy. So let us uh, compare these two figures. Uh, London's uh, court uh, decided, so in accordance with its uh, solution, so Kolomoisky have, or former owners of the bank, uh, have to pay to the bank 10 million of uh, pounds. Mm. I believe that uh, uh, former owners of uh, the bank uh, uh, are happy to pay this amount and uh, just 10 million, but uh, the amount uh, regarding recapitalization is 5 billion US dollars. It's completely different uh, well, exactly. amount. So what's happening here? What, what? Uh, okay, the thing is, uh, can we trust to uh, this figure that really this uh, uh, breach in uh, banks uh, uh, Cash flow, 5 billion uh, US dollars, uh, was caused by uh, illegal actions of uh, former owners of the bank. It mm. is the question, and uh, it is most important uh, question. And uh, as soon as uh, uh, former owners of the bank uh, would like to have a, a solution of London uh, court, mm. it means that they are interested to, to be protected by the court, mm. uh, the trust for which is uh, has highest level. So everybody yeah. trusts to London's, uh, London's court. And uh, there are other uh, uh, experts, uh, uh, I, I mean uh, uh, Pricewaterhouse, uh, uh, audit uh, mm. uh, company, uh, reputation of which is more expensive than uh, all pr private uh, bank. Uh, yeah. They uh, audited this bank and uh, in accordance with the uh, report, uh, so uh, bank uh, was uh, serving uh, uh, its uh, clients in accordance with law and so on and so on, so uh, balanced and national bank, uh, if you uh, remember, uh, kick off this audit uh, company from uh, Ukrainian uh, market mm. and 
personally myself i believe to uh, price waterhouse uh, uh, as everybody as uh, international uh, com community uh, mm. believe them so for me this uh, bridge or, or hole in the balance of uh, private bank uh, 5 billion uh, us dollars uh, is uh, uh, a kind of amount which has to be investigated and openly and this will be done by the, the London court, or are there different courts which are involved in this, I, I, uh, or you're not okay. sure? Uh, uh, it is a case uh, inside of Ukraine. Of course, the uh, full stop will be uh, put by uh, our courts, and I believe that it will be uh, find some consensus, uh, some uh, agreement uh, between uh, the state uh, mm. and uh, former uh, owners of the bank. Now, um, it's, it's interesting that you said that there might be some agreement because I remember there was an interview, I think it was in the Financial Times uh, in September, where the Prime Minister uh, said that uh, they were looking, and uh, perhaps it was a mistranslation or something, but mm -hmm. some sort of compromise. And this particular word, compromise, really set off alarm bells um, in uh, in the States because obviously there's the IMF program that Ukraine really relies on for financing at the moment. And um, obviously there was the uh, the photo as well that was on the uh, presidential office website uh, with uh, Kolomoisky and uh, the president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. And again, this was another sign that perhaps there was some uh, backdoor dealing that could have been going on. We can't say it, it was for certain, but it could have been happening. Um, so um, can you tell us a bit about what the IMF, you think, are thinking at the moment about Privat Bank and the economic stability in general? Okay, uh, the uh, IMF demand, uh, uh, I would say, are the same as demands of uh, Ukrainian society. So the main thing is that uh, private bank uh, uh, should uh, uh, keep uh, servicing uh, clients and uh, it should keep uh, stability. Mm. It is the main thing. Uh, well, and it is, I will repeat, the main demand. Uh, so. I don't believe that IMF uh, demands, uh, so uh, in any case you should not uh, uh, put uh, back uh, this nationalization. Mm. It is not uh, the business of uh, uh, IMF. IMF is interested for repaying uh, its loans to uh, Ukraine and it is the task of uh, IMF. And uh, uh, IMF cannot... Uh, uh, be involved in our uh, court solutions and uh, and so on and so on. Uh, yeah. So uh, no, of course. But at the same time, um, they're looking at uh, confidence levels in Ukraine. Uh, when you're talking about billions, uh, which are involved in the IMF program, um, obviously they're not going to be influential in the decisions which are going to be happening. But they're going to be a very observant outsider. Uh, of course, uh, uh, amount of uh, uh, next IMF uh, program is about five billion uh, uh, US dollars uh, for five mm. uh, years, and uh, this uh, amount is uh, not uh, very big for uh, Ukrainian e economy, as we were talking uh, before. Mm. Uh, the main uh, thing with uh, relationship with IMF of uh, Ukraine is uh, the good signal for investors, and and so on and so on. And uh, speaking about private bank the influence of private uh, private bank here on ukrainian economy is much more is much bigger than uh, 
program uh, with uh, IMF. Yeah. And again, I will repeat the third time. The main issue is uh, to make things like uh, this bank should keep uh, servicing uh, in a stable way uh, its clients. And it does. It yes, does. yes. Yeah. So is the most important issue. Yeah, and also, um, I mean, I, th I think when people look at uh, the banking situation in Ukraine from abroad, they don't look at the just the economics, which is your speciality, but they look at the rule of law, they look at the courts, they look at uh, uh, economic growth as well. So do you think that uh, perhaps court cases like this, um, they don't really have a significant impact on economic growth and foreign investment, that, that sort of thing? Uh, of course, uh, uh, to attract foreign investments, uh, uh, we have to have uh, uh, good uh, uh, investment clients. And here uh, we have very many uh, aspects. Uh, so, and the private bank is uh, uh, one private case. Mm. Of course, uh, court system, uh, general corruption uh, in Ukraine, and the, uh, all these things uh, focus on one issue, protection of investors. Mm. Uh, uh, home investors and foreign investors. So foreign investors will not come uh, to Ukraine if they will not be sure that uh, the investments are safe, uh, safe in, uh, in Ukraine. And I think that uh, it is uh, too much talking about this uh, uh, case and uh, I'm sure that compromise will be found because uh, from uh, the side of state where very many violations of Ukrainian law, including privatization and mm. uh, I mean nationalization yeah. of, of this uh, bank. And it is a solution of the court. So nobody doubt that uh, this nationalization was made with uh, many uh, violations. But it and, had to be done though at the time. Uh, or do you think that wasn't uh, the case? Okay, speaking uh, speaking about uh, uh, um, so okay let's say uh, several words about general situation on banking uh, system uh, mm. of Ukraine and financial system uh, we uh, uh, saw then a big banking fall so uh, about 100 banks uh, were uh, bankrupts yeah. uh, and uh, suffered their clients and the private bank uh, was in very difficult uh, financial uh, situation general situation for financial system it is it was very difficult to keep serving clients and uh, i would say uh, shareholders former share, private shareholders mm. Uh, took uh, forces uh, to uh, save save the bank. Of course, they uh, use their own uh, money, and uh, until privatization, uh, nationalization, the mm. bank uh, kept uh, servicing uh, its uh, its client. So I would say that uh, nationalization of uh, national uh, bank of uh, of private bank was the cause of uh, uh, general uh, not stable situation in uh, bank banking system of Ukraine and the fault uh, for this uh, situation, not stability of banking mm -hmm. system, uh, is on uh, the state or on the on the government and uh, well, the again, government at the time, uh, yeah, that time, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. of course, and uh, somebody have to be responsible for this uh, uh, for these uh, issues. I'm not uh, doubt that uh, uh, former owners of the bank. Um, 
uh, not we're making everything uh, legally uh, I think uh, of What's course your opinion uh, yeah, yeah yeah it's it's my it's my appeal of course yeah. I'm uh, just expressing only my uh, my opinion mm. Uh, so, uh, I think, uh, uh, of course, they uh, took some uh, money from, from the bank. Uh, I uh, accept that uh, there were not very uh, good uh, agreements and so on and, and, and so on. And so on. Uh, but uh, uh, it's uh, their part. But yeah. on the other part is the state which made uh, very many violations mm. as well. So and no doubt these it, investigations it, yeah, will continue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for uh, coming into us. that all of you paid attention to what he was saying. If not, please go back and listen to it. Now, allow me to tell you about Kolomoinsky, something about it. So I had front row seats to watch 55 Public Square get raided, <laughs> kind of had a cigarette, walked by it, you know, all that stuff. The tycoon himself made his first million trading goods in the 90s before acquiring billions in assets in a series of controversial takeovers. He returned to the Ukraine to, when, when did he go? Hold on. He returned to the Ukraine in 2019, right? He returned to Ukraine in 2019, which was quite interesting. Um, yeah, after not being there since 2017, 2018, um, of self-imposed exile in Israel and Switzerland. Now, I want you to understand that timeline that is being perpetuated is, uh, off because he left the U.S. after the raid. So it's a little bit weird. Now, I want you to know that 70% of the One Plus One media group, uh, which has the TV channel One Plus One broadcast, Servant of the People, was the TV series in which Zelensky played the role of Ukraine's president. In addition, when Zelensky was elected, do you know who he appointed as his chief of staff? Andrei Bodan, who was... Kolomoinsky's personal attorney. Now, uh, it all seems really weird, doesn't it? Basil Kaliman, who's a professor at the Ivy Business School in Ontario, Canada, um, thinks that there's a major threat to the reform agenda of the Zelensky presidency. Let me pause right here. If you remember back in 2019, I and we were talking about Biden and et cetera. I did tell you that they were in the Munich cyber conference in that February where Yovanovitch was there, where all these people were there and they were discussing how they're going to just push Biden to the front and they will use the power of the media to silence anyone who speaks. But one thing people don't seem to understand is that we have everything we need. It's just people are not paying attention. Like for example, there's a Hunter email uh, from back in 2015 where there were discussions on how Igor Kolomoinsky, this 2015, had um, started and sold Burisma to the owner of Burisma, um, Zlosevsky, Nikolai Zlosevsky. And so everyone's like, that's terrible. Like, Burisma, you know, was never 
created and then sold to Nikolai by Privat Bank owner. Uh, but nobody talks about that at all. Nobody talks about that conjecture right there. In addition, what other people don't talk about is, and I quote, I don't know why the president, and when we say the president, he's speaking of President Trump. I don't know why President Trump would turn to him, said Rob Portman in an interview. I've never talked to Giuliani about anything to do with Ukraine. I am the co-chair of the bipartisan Senate Ukraine caucus. I know best. Of course he does. He's now resigned. Just because you resigned, Rob, doesn't mean that you're impervious to the people of Ohio suing your ass off. That's going to be coming. See, one thing that no one is really discussing is while they speak of, oh, you know, Biden and, and Ukraine and Obama and Ukraine and this and Ukraine, why aren't your senators and congressmen held accountable hmm? when Burisma was lobbying to them too? Now, let's go to Ukrainian radio. Yes, you heard that right, Ukrainian radio. Let's take a listen to Rob Portman, just a 30-second clip of him on Ukrainian radio. Did I say that? Ukrainian radio? Ukrainian radio. Ukrainian radio. I'm just going to say it again. Please take a listen to what he had to say. Senator Rob Portman, as the president and the head of the Ukrainian caucus of the Senate of the United States, is leading a fight to arrest the Russian separatists and demands the Ukraine required for defense. Ukrainian Democratic League of Ohio supports Rob Portman. Please remember to vote for Rob Portman on the seat of the Senator Sha on the 8th of April. I'm Rob Portman. I'm running for the United States Senate, and I approve this message. Oplachino by Portman for Senate Committee. Wait a minute. Did we just hear an advertisement of a U.S. senator on Ukrainian radio in Ukrainian that he approves a message? I'm sorry. I'm just so freaking confused. Huh. So bizarre. So bizarre. So bizarre. In 2016, Kolomonsky and his business partner, Bogolibov, were accused of defrauding Ukraine's largest bank, billions of dollars. The government nationalized the bank that year after paying off a $5.6 billion bailout. A lawsuit against Kolomonsky was then brought by Privat Bank to the High Court in London and ended the freezing of 2.6 billion of the oligarch's assets. But in 2018, the court ruled it had no jurisdiction. <laughs> of course it didn't. To proceed further, many people believe that the nationalization of Privat Bank was essential for the viability of the banking system, given its oversized role, its weak capitalization, and billions of dollars of non-performing loans. Wait, non-performing loans. Hold on. Wasn't that why amalgamated bank got busted wait didn't 
BCCI have the same thing, non-operating loans. You know, when they crack down on the cartels, the triads, and all these senators and congressmen, and Bush, right, when they were getting loans but didn't have to pay them back. Isn't this why every single one of you listening to me right now that are paying union dues, you're sitting on your fucking ass. You should be writing letters to your union asking them for the financials because there is no money. But no one listens, so hey, I can only pray. Just like no one listened about getting the warrants from Bank of America and Wells Fargo when you were in J6. You know, having said that, let me just insert a fun fact. When you get banned from a platform, for example, I got banned from PayPal. I got banned from Vimo. I got banned from Cash App. I got banned from Twitch. I got banned from my bank, right? I got banned from everywhere. Do you know why you get banned? Do you think it's because they want a silent speech like the right tells you? right? Oh, I was banned because of speech. Yeah, they say it's about speech. Do you want to know why they do it? Well, if you look at their legal terms, right? Here's your fun fucking fact. So you know where your information goes when you're banned off of something. If they ban you for alleged whatever they want to allege, oh, harmful, domestic terror, whatever the fuck they want to say, your shit goes straight to the FBI. And suddenly, they're investigating you because the company that gave your information asked them to. They are investigating you because the company that, that banned you did it to investigate you. Again, I repeat, they're investigating you. Investigating you. Hmm. That's a lot of American. Kind of coincides with what the FBI whistleblower said, huh? Investigating you. Now let's go back to this so you can understand how sting operations are actually done. The restructuring of this bank was seen as high importance by the IMF, so that way they can capture it. See, if the IMF is in there and they're backing it, everybody's got to back it because that's the way contracts go. All these Western nations, their asses are owned by the IMF. Remember? Remember Lagarde? Remember how President Trump walked out on her? He knows. See, these are the subtleties. But you know, I actually worked for a company for about three weeks. It was called Dragon Capital, Dragon Securities. Mm. Zelensky's advisors had said that Privat Bank will not be returned to Kolomensky at the time. But Thomas Fiala, the CEO of Kiev Best based investment company Dragon Capital says it's clear that Kolomoinsky will continue to fight his corner. So how do you introduce evidence into investigations? How do you snag people, right, Portman? Because you've been snagged. And while you may have cut deals, I say no deals. I'm in Ohio. I'm coming. You hear that, LaRose? I'm coming. Find it here. Heart of America, find it here. And I will show the proof in the pudding to show you just how long this Ukrainian operation has been set. I mean, I did talk about it, how we were giving them in the 90s all this freaking money, how we were paying Igor Pasternak to envision balloons and gave him $75 million, and how we hired a guy that made blimps to provide weapons that didn't work. It was just a happenstance, right? Well, let's see what 
alleged Republican, Senator Rob Portman, on the Ukraine crisis had to say. Let's listen to what this Republican had to say. See, if you guys opened up the financials of Republicans, you would see a lot of Ukrainian dollar. Oh, strong like ox their portfolios. To President Biden's State of the Union address and especially what the administration is doing with regard to Ukraine, we turn to a Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, the co-chair of the Senate's Ukraine caucus, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. I spoke with him moments ago. Senator Portman, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, what is your reaction to what President Biden had to say last night about Ukraine and and your reaction to the overall uh, response of this administration to that crisis. Well, I thought the Ukrainian comments were the strongest part of the speech, um, and so did others. As you saw, we got a standing ovation from both sides of the aisle. It's really important that we stay unified, not just as Americans, but also with freedom-loving countries all around the globe, because it's really the only chance we have to be able to be successful here. And to stand with Ukraine is the right place to stand for everyone, uh, by the way, including countries that have yet to step forward, like China. Um, you're either with tyranny or, or, you know, you're for the people of Ukraine. So I was encouraged to see that uh, part of the speech be so well received. I did advocate for more sanctions earlier on, so-called pre-invasion sanctions. Uh, uh, we were not successful in getting that done. But the sanctions came, and they came uh, extensively, and, you know, they're tough sanctions once the invasion happened. I, I had hoped that we could do it before the invasion, because I thought it might have had the effect of changing uh, Vladimir Putin's mind. I don't know that. But now we're where we are. So we need to continue to tighten the noose on the Putin economy. And of course, we should cut off the oil from Russia. That just makes no sense to me. Uh, we'll have to make some adjustments in terms of our refinery capacity. But it's only 4% of our oil. But we certainly shouldn't be sending millions of dollars uh, every day to uh, the Putin regime to help finance this war. I want to ask you about several of those things, Senator, but I also want to ask you about your comment that the United States needs to be speeding more lethal assistance uh, to Ukraine. Today, the Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, said uh, the administration, I'm, I'm quoting, he said it's very actively working every day, every hour to provide assistance, make sure it gets to where it needs to go. Um, I think you have a good idea of what the administration is sending, but you're saying that's not enough? Well, first of all, I appreciate the fact that the American people are funding so much uh, support for the Ukrainian people, allowing them to protect themselves. Ukrainians have not asked for us to be on the ground over the years, but they have said they need more help, and I've always been a strong advocate for that. We're, we're finally doing it in, in larger numbers, and that's great. There are two areas where I think we could help a lot more. Uh, one is with regard to aircraft, which they desperately need, as you know. The Europeans had talked about providing uh, MiG fighters, which the Ukrainians can operate as compared to our fighters. Uh, and our bombers, for that matter. Uh, and yet, today, there was news that perhaps some of that was being pulled back. I think it's in the United States' interest uh, to be involved here and to compensate European countries who are willing to provide the kind of fighters that the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly and can be effective in using. So I think that's one area where we, we should be doing more in the air. Second is with regard to drones. Um, again, our drones are probably not appropriate because it requires uh, months, if not years, of training. But there are other drones that are on the market where the United States could help with regard to, again, purchasing those, in essence, or compensating countries like Turkey to provide that capability. We've all seen this horrible image of uh, miles and miles of 
Russian tanks and armored vehicles moving toward Kyiv, right. and uh, no resistance. And part of that is that the, the air power superiority that the Russians have is making it difficult. So I think there are things we could do that are a little more creative uh, to do something in addition to the small arms we are sending, which is needed to the Javelin missile to knock down the, the tanks and the stingers to, to knock down the airplanes. So I think... Speaking of sending them things, what if, let's just hypothetically, hypothetically, as you know, I live in Cleveland. I have a nice view of the lake, one of our great lakes, fantastic lakes, massive lakes that have tankers on them, that get shipments on them, shipments, tons of them. And not only do they receive, but they deliver. Hmm. Well, let's just circle back a little bit before I wrap this up. <laughs> Tankers. Zelensky had ordered the removal of two top law enforcement officials um, about almost a year ago. And the reason he did it, he did it on charges of treason. Remember, he's an actor. However, critics accuse Zelensky of using Russia's invasion and his wartime authority as a pretext to consolidate power. No shit, Sherlock. As per The Guardian in UK, Ukraine's oligarchs have lost their influence in the country's political and economic arena. And the war with Russia has seemingly enabled Zelensky to become the first Ukrainian president to sideline the oligarchs as per The Guardian, of course. Now, Ukraine has a very vague citizenship law. And the reason behind the implementation of such a vague citizenship is that dual citizens of those mentioned in the decree, they have dual citizenship rules for people. Ukraine doesn't permit dual citizenship, even though the process by which a citizen can be stripped of the Ukrainian passport isn't set. And so that's interesting. Citizenship, are they really acknowledged in some way? Well, a citizen of Ukraine cannot be deprived of citizenship and the right to change citizenship. A citizen of Ukraine cannot be expelled from Ukraine or extradited to any other state. That's Article 25 of the Constitution, alleged Constitution of Ukraine. That's interesting, isn't it? Considering that the decision to revoke citizenship is vague in terms of legality since it's not established within Ukraine's legal framework. And what happened was Zelensky stripped Ukrainian citizenship from Kolomoinsky and others. So how does he do that? How does he strip them? So where is, you know, Kolomoinsky, Corbin, Rabinovich, you know, they're the most high profile victim to fall victim to this rule that he made where they stripped them of citizenship. Kolomoinsky, one of Ukraine's best known oligarchs with business interests in energy, mass media, banking, and finance. And they've expelled him. His business activities led to scandals or long legal battles, including the case of Privat Bank, which is Ukraine's largest bank. <laughs> How much you wanna make a bet that your selected official have accounts with the Ukrainian banks. Taking bets, we should have this shit online. 
and take bets, take bets, take bets. But then we have to think about something, something quite startling. Let me pull the picture up right quick. I want to pull it up because I'm going to show you what's interesting. So as you all know, I've, I've pretty much made it clear that yes, I have worked the Ukraine desk in some form and capacity. Just how well do we know this? I mean, the whole Ukrainian capacity. Quite fascinating. See, one thing that needs to be said is that there are a lot of things that are untold to the people. For example, when someone resigns, it's usually, oh, you know, I'm going to leave because, you know, whatever. Well, let me show you something. It's quite fascinating. I want you to look at this bench. Take a look at this bench. What a nice bench. It's a nice bench. Super nice bench. It's pretty heavy, too. This bench was used during the elections in Ukraine during the color revolution that they had, right? And it was actually used to barricade things. It's historical, right? It's historical. Well, this bench was in the possession of Rob Portman. How the fuck did he get a bench from Ukraine? And then he gifted it to someone. And then you think, all right, hold on a second. So you get a bench from Ukraine, right, as a relic with their stickers and helmets and the beat up thing. How'd you bring it here? Let me guess, tinkers? Shit, what else are they bringing? Hiatus. So here's this bench from Ukraine that Rob Portman had in his possessions that he donated, but who gave it to him? Now, that's interesting. Let's shift a few gears so maybe it'll make sense. Let me play for you a response by Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas. You're going to be like, what does that have to do with the bench? Hold on. You're going to see this in a second. Just bear with me. Let's take a listen to what Justice Clarence Thomas had to say. Tonight, growing questions after revelations that for more than 20 years, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted lavish vacations from a major Republican donor without disclosing it to the court. When we talk about hospitality or personal gifts, uh, those are keywords or, or buzzwords that are allowed through the loophole of reporting that the Supreme Court justices have chosen to follow. In a rare statement defending himself, Thomas says he was advised early on in his tenure by colleagues and others in the judiciary that this, quote, sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. The fallout follows a stunning report by nonprofit news outlet ProPublica, uncovering that for the past two decades, Thomas has enjoyed, among other things, island hopping on a superyacht in Indonesia, trips on a private jet, all-male retreats at an exclusive California club, and fishing at a resort in the Adirondacks, all thanks to a Dallas billionaire friend who happens to be an influential Republican donor. There are no restrictions on justices accepting travel gifts, but they have to be disclosed. 
However, the report says Thomas never listed the travel gifts from GOP donor Harlan Crow and his wife. Thomas says he endeavored to comply with the disclosure guidelines and that he intends to follow new guidance in the future. On Twitter, progressive Democrats like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling for the conservative justice to be impeached. And legal analysts point out that the U.S. Supreme Court has no formal code of ethics, a governing body, or a way to enforce any potential wrongdoing. But Democratic Whip Dick Durbin is vowing that the Senate Judiciary Committee, which he chairs, will act. Okay, all this time I've been talking, and it has not been coming through, has it? Gosh darn it. So all of you listening to that Clarence Thomas hit piece, must think, well, how is this all happening? What is going on? Well, let me tell you about crow. I love crow. It's time for people to eat some crow. Harlan Crow is from the beloved state of Texas, specifically Dallas. I think he lives a few doors down from someone I adore, Lenny. He is a chairman of Crow Holdings a private family business. The company owns and manages real estate investments throughout the United States and overseas. He's actually part of the presidential center of George W. Bush, because they're neighbors, of course, as well, just so you know. He serves on boards like the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, Thomas Jefferson Foundation, Supreme Court Historical Society, and is a member of the American Antiquary Society, so Supreme Court Historical Society, which does provide small gifts to all Supreme Court justices. But as we see, the media is only focused on Clarence Thomas, of course. Please pay attention. Only focusing on Clarence Thomas, of course. What about the other justices? What about the other justices that have received gifts from the Supreme Court Historical Society? Oh, and as a member of the American Antiquarian Society, he collects relics throughout time. Could be anything from like the spear that pierced through Jesus to Nazi memorabilia to anything that you can see is historical. He likes to collect. I mean, all of us like to collect memorabilia. He's also part of the Philosophical Society of Texas. Now, many will be like, oh my gosh, this is a problem. Is it though? So, are the gifts that were given to the Supreme Court justices wrong? No. It was a historical society providing them, I don't know, movies. Hey, we're all going on a retreat with the society. Here's a trip for all of you. You know, things like that. Now, this Nazi bench was actually given to Rob Portman by Harlan Crow. And then Rob Portman donated that. I mean, did he report it? Did he report the gift of the bench? Oh, it's just a bench. Ha, it's memorabilia. Someone paid for that heavy ass bench. Having been in the presence of the bench, touching the bench, sitting on the bench. And when explained about the bench, was told super heavy. Now let's listen to Harlan Crow.
he had an interview with NPR. I want you guys to listen to this interview coined the Garden of Evil. Well, it was actually the Atlantic magazine that published the exclusive interview, but this was on NPR, just in case you missed it. And you know how they titled it? In case you missed it, in the Garden of Evil with Claren Thomas's friend, Harlan Crow. Actually, he's Justice Roberts' friend, Alito, et cetera, et cetera. But let's continue. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. And this is In Case You Missed It, where we bring you some of the week's biggest conversations. This week, The Atlantic Magazine published an exclusive interview with Harlan Crow, the ultra-wealthy real estate developer whose friendship and financial relationship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is the subject of much scrutiny. The interview was done by Atlantic staff writer Graham Wood at Crow's home in Dallas, Texas. 1A's Jen White spoke to Graham about the article, and we'll let Jen take it from here. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So just a quick reminder for people who may not be familiar with Harlan Crow's background. Tell us a little bit about him. Harlan Crow is an extremely wealthy real estate developer in Dallas, Texas. His father was also an extremely wealthy real estate developer. And he's been in the news because one of his closest friends is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And it turns out that Thomas has been the recipient of a number of gifts from Crow, and a lot of people think that maybe Crow uh, has undue influence over the Supreme Court justice. And then on the side, it turns out that he has, Crow has a large historical collection that includes some Nazi memorabilia, which is always something that will raise eyebrows. When you went to his home, you start off the article in his, quote, garden of evil. Crow is a prolific art collector. Describe what walking through that garden was like and, and what it told you about him. Well, he has uh, statues that have been harvested from around the world, places where autocracies, tyrannies have fallen. Uh, The tyrants tend to have statues of themselves, and those statues tend to be toppled over and then sold at cut rates. And Harlan Crow is one of the people who buys them. So if you walk through his yard, you will find a Stalin, a Mao, a Ho Chi Minh, a Hosni Mubarak, and you get the sense that you're in a kind of petrified forest of 20th century world history. What did it tell you about him? Because I can only imagine walking through that scene. It it must have been a bit jarring. Yeah. I mean, the first thing you realize is that you're not in the company of a normal person or or even a normal ultra rich person. This is someone who has a very strong sense of history and is affected by it. And I asked him, why would you collect these things? And he said, look, the, the story of my lifetime, he's about 73 years old, is the story of tyranny fighting against liberty. And so uh, this is not something where we storm the beaches of Normandy. It's a long philosophical struggle, and this is a monument to it. You asked Harlan Crow whether he has any other financial relationships with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas or anyone related to Thomas. What did he say? Uh, he, he said that he doesn't keep track of his po- of his hospitality, which is extended to many who are not Clarence Thomas as well. So he, he didn't rule out the possibility that, that other dealings will, will be discovered. But w- what already exists is already pretty extensive. I mean, we're talking about luxury vacations on yachts in Indonesia, in New Zealand, in Russia, uh, flights on a private jet, and tuition for Clarence Thomas's grandnephew. So w- what we have already is, is quite a bit of entanglement. And he, he didn't totally rule out the possibility that there might be I just have to jump in. 
it was a scholarship from the Supreme Court Historical Society, not paid tuition. But let's continue. Let's listen to what they have to say. More that he'd forgotten about. And there's also the question of the purchase of Clarence Thomas's mother's home. Remind us about the details at that, of that. That's right. Clarence Thomas's mother is now about 94 years old. She uh, lives in Georgia, and her house a few years ago was bought by Harlan Crow for what appears to be roughly fair market value. And Crow also did a makeover on the block, which had some pretty rundown properties, criminal activity. And so I asked Crow about that, and he said, look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with buying a house. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to improve neighborhood. And I felt like I was doing a good thing for, for the neighborhood and, 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 and for my friend. And he, he said that he intended to make that house into a, a, a museum for Clarence Thomas. In this interview with Crow, he said to you that he and Clar- Clarence Thomas, quote, talk about the kind of things friends talk about, end quote. And he was describing things like weather and sports. And in an email to you later. I'm sorry, I have to interject again. So basically, Harlan Crow purchased Justice Clarence Thomas's mother's home to then create a museum, being part of the Supreme Court Historical Society, that sounds pretty reasonable considering he's a donor, to maintain Supreme Court historical artifacts and records. You know, stuff we need to remember our past so we don't repeat it in the future. And yet they're using that against him. Shall we take a look at the other Supreme Court justices too? Shall we take a look at their obligations and yachts, you know, for retreats that they did. All of them. But let's continue. He said, quote, it's not like we haven't talked about work-related issues. What did you take away from this conversation with Crow about the nature of his relationship with Clarence Thomas? So Crow told me that the conversations they had were the type of conversations that two guys who were in their early 70s uh, who have shared the, the same same history in some ways and who are in some ways totally different of course different races different levels of 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 uh wealth and poverty growing up he said we talk about the weather we talk about sports now and then although neither of us is a big sports fan we talk about occasionally about our work but he said we, we draw a red line around th- matters related to jurisprudence we'll talk about Justice Thomas's favorite new clerk. We'll talk about the time that he bumped into Stephen Breyer at Target once, but we will not talk about any pending cases. So Crow really took pains to say that, and to, to demonstrate, I must say, that their friendship is real. They, they really do enjoy each other's company and seek each other's company out, quite apart from the luxuries that Crow can provide. What he wasn't able to really tell me, though, was why any of the rest of us sh- should just take a Supreme Court justice and a very rich man at their word that they're not talking about something that's closely related to the to the governance of, of this country. What was really striking to me about your piece is... So we shouldn't take them at their word, right? But we take Obama at his word. We take Biden at his word. We take Zelensky at his word. We take everyone else at their word, but not the people that actually contribute to maintaining historical records. You know what's really funny? That when all this came out, where they're targeting just Clarence Thomas, they're not talking about Alito's gifts and yachts and conversations, right? Who all had them, right? They're not talking about that. They're just talking about him. They brought up how he has the Mein Kampf book from Hitler. 
that he has Nazi memorabilia. Shit. If I had the money Harlan Crow had, I would do the same. So what are they doing? Without targeting Harlan Crow, they're using him as a crutch to come in. Why? Whose bright idea was that? Well, that's a fantastic idea. Because now we can pop it open and say, well, I guess we've got to get rid of all the judges. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. Oh, we misunderstood. The Atlantic Council just formulated it wrong when they talked about it. Because wait till you see what the Atlantic Council has as interest in the Ukraine. <laughs> He's going to get pretty frisky. Gloves are off. I suppose his credulousness, there's a, there's a certain, how would I describe it? A disconnect, perhaps, <laughs> around why the financial relationship is significant. Were you able to come away from your interaction with him with any clarity around what was at the heart of that disconnect? Yes. You know, Harlan Crow. I, I spoke to him for about six hours, and he, he, what came across from him personally, what, what he values most, is this sense of integrity, which ironically is exactly what's being impugned in describing his, his relationship with Thomas as a corrupt relationship. But he really does think of himself as someone whose morals come front and center. And exactly as you say, that, that there is a real naivete there because he, I believe he assumes that other people have the same view of himself that he has, that his, he thinks so much about his, uh, the standards that he conducts his life by that he assumes that other people will take him at his word when he says the same. And in fact, the world is filled with people who are uh, just as corrupt as people think that Harlan Crow is. And I think Harlan Crow kind of knows that. He, he's, he's not a big fan of, for example, uh, former President Donald Trump. And I think that's really why, is because his worldview is a worldview of people who are excluded from public life if they have any lack of morals or character. And since he perceives himself to have lots of morals and a very strong character, it's very difficult for him to understand why anyone would think that his relationship with Justice Thomas is anything other than on the up and up. What did he say about the relationship with Justice Thomas going forward, especially the financial aspect of that relationship? So I think we have to separate the obligations that Crow has with the obligations that Thomas has. And mm -hmm. Thomas, among the justices, has been uniquely resistant to any kind of uh, enforcement of dis disclosure rules. So that seems to be continuing to be Justice Thomas's view. And he says that he'll disclose more according to the new rules going forward. But for, from Crow's perspective, he cannot believe that, that one would ask him to give up a friendship, a friendship that means a great deal to him. Crow told you, quote, my hope is that this is the last conversation I have on this topic in public. Graham, what was your understanding of why he did the interview in the first place? Well, I had written a column about him because he had been described as a Nazi, which is simply not true. I mean, it, it, you can spend 10 minutes talking with him about what tyranny means to him and who his political idols are. And, and it, in that time, you'll be able to tell with 100% certainty he is not a Nazi. So I had given him this minimal defense of saying not a Nazi. And I think because of that, he, he reached out to me and said, okay, I'll talk to you a bit more. I don't want to talk to really anyone about this. This is not a subject that I'm pleased to be in the news about. But uh, we'll have this one conversation and, and I'll call that a day and hope that it goes away. I'm not sure that it will. Yeah, because to my mind, your conversation with him actually raises more questions than 
answers. And and so what do you think happens moving forward, especially for Clarence Thomas? Well, Clarence Thomas is protected by being on the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, for all sorts of reasons, good and bad, have has decided not to police itself with the rigor that many of us w- would like. I think for Crow, his life going forward is unfortunately for him going to be different. I mean, he wanted to be just another quiet, multi-multi-multi-millionaire in the center of Dallas, Texas. And now the first line of his obituary is going to read somewhat differently from, I think, he he wanted it to. So that's just what life is going to be going forward. And the belief that you can be that wealthy and have friends of that level of power and not have complications like this is, again, an element of his naivete. Naivete? Pete Crow, bitches. See, a lot of people don't seem to understand just what's happening. And that's because of disinformation and misinformation. Now, don't get me wrong. The disinformation, misinformation, when used correctly, is quite beneficial. But like I've said, this has been the plan always. I will be posting on my social media an actual depiction of that from the days of yore. And then when the article drops, you'll see just how steady and how they plan things. What you need to understand is who these people are. Is Harlan Crow a bad guy? No, he loves his country. He supports it. And they all won't throw him under the bus. They feel bad that they're using him and he's letting them use him. Because remember when President Trump was sitting in Winston Churchill's chair. I posted that on Instagram with a statement. History will be kind to me because I intend to write it. See, Harlan Crow is going to make a lot of people eat crow. He's a smart man, a humble man that works to maintain history. But, you know, here's an old video depicting Harlan Crow. It's from seven years ago. Having said that, where's Charles Black? But let's take a listen. You can meet. Margaret Crow was a teacher and very much a lady. Trammell delighted in the success of others. He'd teach you to go for your aspirations and never let yourself down. My mom was somebody I could talk to. She was my friend. Trammell loved what he did, and he loved the people that he did it with. My dad came from a very humble background born in East Dallas in a family of eight kids and father that had work sometimes, didn't have work much of the time. Even though he wanted to become well-educated, he couldn't afford to. And because his family was very religious in a conventional Christian environment, the church offered to pay for him to be educated under the condition that he become a minister, which would have been a completely different life. I think dad did feel because he couldn't afford the level of education that a lot of his friends and his wife did, he overcompensated by lifelong study. Mother was born on the corner of Armstrong Avenue and Byron Avenue. 
on the southern boundary of Highland Park. She came from generations of builders. Her grandfather on her father's side was the mayor of McKinney. On her mother's side, her great-great-grandmother was the pioneering family that, that started University Park in Highland Park. In the spring of 1939, Margaret lost her parents and became an orphan. And that had to be an immense tragedy for her, being an only child. She was the recipient of the family house and the family fortune and the Doggett Grain Company. And all of that had to be a lot for this junior in college at the University of Texas. I think that it really was the lesson that life is precious. And Margaret was a survivor. Margaret and Trammell met in the summer of 1940. She was completely enraptured by this very smart, very ambitious young man who was working then at a bank here in Dallas. I think it was a whirlwind romance. They were married just two years later. In fact, I think at one point he sold his car to buy her engagement ring. I would idealize my parents' relationship. I would say it was damn close to perfect. The kind of couple that when they were apart, which they often were, they would miss each other a lot write notes and leave notes on pillows and lots of holding hands. You need a balance between hope and realism. It's got to be a synthesis of all that, and I think they were. Mother saw her role as traditional mom and, and supporting him. Very much that behind every great man there's a woman. Mom and dad were each better because of the other. They respected each other, they motivated each other, and they enjoyed each other. Their lives were broad and deep. She and he went everywhere around the world together. Mom could tell you everywhere in the third world to get your hair done, every little hut in Tahiti. Mom was a total Southern belle. One of the most attractive aspects of Trammell Crow Company was the ability to become a true legal partner. The spirit of partnership for Trammell was not just for himself alone, but because he was excited and thrilled that you were doing well. Part of the whole goal was to succeed as a group of people working together. The idea of if you earn a dollar, you share that dollar. And it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to us. Trammell's work ethic was, uh, I think, also legendary. At that time, we'd work Saturday, but part of the reason we were at the office on Saturday was to see Trammell and have Trammell see us. And uh, often he would come by and visit with us and that would make our weekend when Trammell put his arm around you, you had to listen because there was going to be something that was sage if he had his arm around you and was walking side by side. Trammell's favorite things to do when he saw you was to pat you on the back. And I don't mean just a little pat. It would be a pat that could drop you to your knees if you're not careful. Uh, and if you showed any sign of wincing at all, then you would just get another pat on the back until you were strong enough to withstand it. But we look forward to those pats on the back. And that meant that he loved you and he cared about you. And in spite of whatever was happening in the business world, that you were, you were his son, you were his partner. He cared about what was happening in your life. Trammell Crow is known for the beginning part of his career where he actually developed the trademark area and all of that industrial area along the western side of the city of Dallas and a little bit north of the central part of the city. The trademark, all of the furniture marks, all of those buildings he was involved in developing and that was really, really an important part of the city and brought a lot of commerce to the city. When uh, Trammell needed to finance the World Trade Center, which was on a long-term ground lease from the Stimmons family, 
He approached John Stimmons and said, uh, John, I need to buy the fee so I can finance the building and I'll offer you $6 million for the land. And John Stimmons says, no, it's only worth $4 million. So Trammell insisted on paying $2 million more because he felt so strongly about the value and the friendship and would not pay less than his value. There are many stories like that where he was overly generous and he's remembered for that. One reason that Trammell was very successful was his goal setting. But the primary reason was because he wasn't afraid to surround himself with people that were really, really smart, that were really, really driven, that had a high degree of principled thinking, even though at some point many have become or did become his competitors. John Stimmons called Dad the wild one, and the Anatole could be the personification of that. The Anatole was a great point of creativity for Dad. He explored convention kitchens all across the country to understand how do you do the kitchen right? How do you do the back of the house? It is a Crow family legacy to have that hotel, but also because it's not just a place where people sleep, there's great art there. There's a great opportunity for people to interact with each other around that art. And again, that's something that was totally different. Great art wasn't part of a hotel until he brought it into play in the Anatole. I think that my mom's shops out at the Anatole were a big deal in her life and therefore a big deal in all of our lives. I do remember one occasion when my wife and I were one-on-one -on -one with Trammell and Margaret and she was grinning from ear to ear about her store in the Anatole. And Trammell was just like a proud papa as he watched her, knowing how excited she was about that. Mom and Dad each had attributes that complemented the other. And they each brought a great deal to the relationship. They're both fun, vivacious, ready for the next adventure. Uh, they had similar aspirations in life and built a life headed in the same direction and moving forward together. They were so inspired by their travel and uh, really it was Trammell who would come back and purchase things through auction houses in New York. And after 30 to 40 years of travel, there were over 8,000 objects in their collection. And he was just voracious in his love of these objects. And he would even say, I don't know what it is, but these objects move me. That's what we call a heart connection in a collector. It really is a passionate feeling of joy from collecting these works and sharing them. Sharing them was as much a part of the collecting process. Mom was the one that said, uh, let's go create a museum. I think it was a significant and bold act on her behalf. When he built warehouses in the 50s and 60s, he put a little strip of grass in front of it, or a garden and trees, landscaping. And it might not have been much, but it made it a better property. One time he tried to have the city council put a program in place to put trees on Harry Hines Boulevard. One weekend, he just had his guys go out and start planting trees all along Harry Hines Boulevard and along Lemon. And today you can drive down and occasionally you'll see one that survived and there'll be a pretty massive sycamore tree. And every time I drive by, I think about Trammell and that story. I think Dad's legacy um, really are his partners and their ripple impact into the world. He was a consummate risk taker. And if you look at his batting average over a long career, it would be remarkably high. What he would have cared about much more than any building would have been the company that he built and the people 
in the company and the lives that were influenced by the activities of the company. That would have mattered to him a million times more than any building. I think what Dad did in the business world is he brought his own integrity, his own sense of humanity. His legacy is a legacy of love. Once when I was uh, talking, Don and I were putting on one of our uh, uh, two-man acts at the Harvard Business School, uh, some kid on the back row back up there said with a voice I thought had a little bit of uh, irony in it or cynicism in it, asked me, he said, uh, Mr. Crow, what is the one thing which is the greatest element of success? When I knew in a flash what to say, but I was timid to say it. But after a, a long pause, I just said, well, what the tickets? I'm just going to say it. And you know what it is? It's love. It's the most powerful force in the world and will do more for us individually and as a company than anything else we can do. And I stand here uh, pouring out love to you all and telling you goodbye. Have a good trip home and I'll see you in your home and I'll see you back here soon, I hope. History, history will not sing all heroes' names. These are people. They're not just Crow, they're serving it. There are a lot of people like that. Love is the ultimate cure for almost anything. So similar to hate. So similar to hate. Love of country love of history, love. And when you think of love, right, we think of, well, what do I get for that? And I know, sounds pretty shitty, but it's true. Love is a driving force. Love of humanity, love of people, love of country, love of freedom. And I want all of you to either take the words I say at face value or not. Like I said, trust your own gut. It's important to understand that what I have showed you today has been in the works for many years. The resignations or deals. I tweeted out to Rob Portman, you may have cut a deal with law enforcement. You may have cut a deal to step down, but that doesn't mean the people of Ohio have to accept it. He was given that bench. How did the bench get here? He donated that bench. Hmm. Interesting. Ukraine. Tomorrow we're going to talk about Uruguay, Paraguay. I mean, I did tell you about that, didn't I? And right now we've got Google, listen carefully, building a data center that will use millions of liters of water a day, kind of like the ones in Ohio, remember? You know, we talked about that. Because Uruguay is suffering a 74-year drought. Do oh, you remember who else was in that area of Paraguay, Uruguay? The Bushes. See, legacies. We should define that tomorrow. But I want you to understand that Google bought 72 acres of land to build a 
data center in South Uruguay. It will be using 2 million gallons of water a day to cool its servers. And that's the equivalent to domestic daily use of 55,000 people. So I guess they'll be drinking recycled water like the people of Ohio. Well, that's what the plan is. So tomorrow we'll touch base on that. I hope you guys are going to have a wonderful day. I've got some stuff to do. On that note, sweet dreams. Seven Nation High.